It's Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how Wikipedia editors are bringing more nuance into their decisions and what ripple effects that can have on a website that increasingly defines our shared reality. Plus, how do you refer to historical figures who may have been trans? And a veritable laundry list of attempted Wikipedia hoaxes, including the recent discovery of what is most likely Representative George Santos's Wikipedia user bio from over a decade ago, and its many, many creative lies. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Over the holidays, I overheard some of my cousins extolling the virtues of TikTok, specifically how much they learn from it and how they've learned more from TikTok than they ever did from school. On the one hand, this is great. Some of those cousins never had a great time in school, and if they like learning now, that's awesome. And I agree, there are so many different creators with different niches on TikTok that you really can learn a ton. I especially like the kid who runs NPR's Planet Money TikTok, and any people who share history, household DIY, gardening, recipes. In relation to how much I've learned about the vast world on other platforms and on the internet in general, TikTok feels like sticking a fire hose directly in your face. The content filling your entire screen just keeps coming and coming without you asking it to or seeking it out. I learn about things I would have never thought to look up. But TikTok also spreads a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Most of it's unintentional misinformation. You know, you don't have to have any sort of credentials to post something on TikTok or on any social media platform. And a lot of people's sources are simply another TikTok that they saw. So when I heard my cousins saying how much they've learned from TikTok, I was a little wary. What really got stuck in my craw, though, was when I later heard them joking about how unreliable Wikipedia is and that you can't trust anything you read on there. That is, of course, something that anyone who has been a student since Wikipedia started has heard ad nauseum. You can't use Wikipedia as a citation, and you can't trust anything you read on there because anyone can edit it. Now, this is true. And both due to strict standards set by Wikipedia for its editors and the disastrous landscape of most of the rest of the internet, Wikipedia is actually one of the more reliable sources of information these days. Now, I'm not saying people should cite it directly, but the fact that it cites its sources at all gives it a huge leg up over many other websites and social media. Even though anyone can edit it, not a ton of people do. In the past, I've found that the sign-up process, learning the guidelines, and even navigating the interface to be moderately challenging. It's a higher barrier of entry than a social media platform. I've only edited a handful of articles, pretty much just when I noticed something was wrong. One time, I unknowingly waded into an editing war in which some troll kept rewriting the Highlander page as if the 1986 fantasy movie about immortal warriors was a documentary. So yes, even though only a fraction of the users of Wikipedia take the time to edit pages, the fact that anyone can edit them 
occasionally leads to jokes and disinformation. It's typically caught pretty quickly by more virtuous and eagle-eyed editors, however. As Noam Cohen put it in a recent article about Wikipedia for The Atlantic, quote, The breakthrough idea of Wikipedia was supposed to be its biggest vulnerability, end quote. And yet, this breakthrough idea, it being an encyclopedia that anyone can edit, has turned into one of its bigger strengths in this day of culture war-tinged misinformation. Where you can see this play out best, as Cohen points out, and as I've experienced myself, is on each article's talk page. Located right up at the top in a tab beside article, the talk page catalogs all the discussions surrounding major edits on the page. Now, you can find every edit made by whom, when, and why under revision history on the right hand of your screen, but if you want to look at the debates that editors were having around citations and accuracy, go to the talk page. For example, the troll who kept changing Highlander to a documentary only pops up in the revision history. That never merited a discussion. It was a pretty obvious lie. But on the talk page, there are lengthy discussions about which version of the Highlander film poster to use, differences in cuts of the movie that appeared in different markets, and various calls for citations for claims. One of them is even a reminder that IMDb is not accepted by Wikipedia as a citation. The credits section of an IMDb page, especially when provided by the Writers Guild of America, is accepted, but the fun trivia section on IMDb does not, quoting Wikipedia's policy, have adequate levels of editorial oversight or author credibility and lacks assured persistence, end quote. All of the policy surrounding reliable sources is the backbone of Wikipedia. For most of Wikipedia's existence, articles have been written using secondary sources from established publications, scholarly articles, outlets like the New York Times, books, etc. This is still mostly the case. However, sometimes there's information that seems pertinent or stylistic decisions to be made that a secondary source can't provide the answer to. Examples of those cases and how Wikipedia is changing to accommodate those cases coming up after a word from our sponsors. Okay, so what happens on Wikipedia when editors acknowledge that an aspect of a topic or a way part of the topic is worded should be included or updated, but there are no sources that reflect what is currently more broadly understood? Cohen gives the particular example of people who have passed away who are known to have transgressed gender in some way, but who did not leave behind a public record that definitively stated their name, identity, or pronouns. How do we refer to them respectfully when we can't ask them? And when no major publications give an answer that seems to acknowledge the individual's full self— as someone who is passionate about trans history, this is something I've thought and read a lot about. I'll put a link in the show notes to a video I made discussing this topic at length a while back. Historians differ, and it can vary from historical figure to historical figure, the context of their time and culture, and what records they left behind. Especially when we think about secondary sources, how do we trust that those were accurately representing the person as they wanted to be represented? 
For example, most of the records we have of potentially trans people in the Western U.S. in the 19th century come from sensational newspaper articles from the newspaper boom of that era. An article outing someone probably doesn't reflect how that person really felt or wanted to be remembered. Another source we have, a rare source of some historical figure's own words, is court documents. But if someone is being charged with dressing as a gender not assigned to them at birth or with something like sodomy or vagrancy, can we even trust that what they said when trying to avoid charges is how they truly felt? It's likely many of them chose to play the game and say what they had to for their own safety, regardless of how they really felt inside. Complicating the issue more is that the language we use for gender identity has changed over time. People who didn't conform to gender roles and who innately felt like they were a gender other than the one they were assigned at birth have existed throughout time and across cultures. But how oppressively gendered their culture was and what resources they were aware of or had access to would change how they may have described their gender, how they even thought about it, and how they may have expressed it. In our current era, in nations like the U.S., while trans people are increasingly under the microscope and under attack, we have lots of words to describe gender. We've normalized the use of whatever pronouns most affirm you, and since about mid-20th century, we have structures in place for socially and medically transitioning. These developments allowed people who previously may not have dared to come out feel free to do so in some capacity. A person assigned female at birth living in a rural area in the 1930s might have felt for their entire life deep down that they were truly a man. But if they didn't know that anyone else in the world felt that way, or that there was anything they could ever do about it, they might have lived their whole life suffering silently, going to the grave without ever mentioning it to another soul. Those people are all but lost to history. But then we have those who did do something about how they felt. They wore the clothing that affirmed their gender. They found their way into jobs more typical of the gender they aligned with. Or they led a sort of double life, occasionally sneaking out to bars and balls dressed as they truly felt. And usually, especially if we have a record to talk about it today, getting caught. Now, previously, we might have tried to scrub that part of a person's history, assuming that they felt shame over it, which they very well may have. Accepting yourself in a society that doesn't accept you is a difficult thing. Or we'd write about it in the language that non-trans and non-queer communities used until recently. For example, using the person's birth name and pronouns, even if there's a record of them using another one, or only switching to a different name and pronouns after a legal or medical change had been made. But these days, the longtime practices of the trans community have been adopted by major style guides, pushing many Wikipedia editors to feel they should follow suit. An easy thing to do for living trans people who have spoken publicly on the record about their new name and pronouns, but what about people in the past, who only ever appeared in publications before these updates to our language and cultural consciousness and style guides? Like the historians, Wikipedia editors are taking it person by person. Cohen gives two examples in The Atlantic that came to different conclusions. One is Gloria Hemingway, 
third child of Ernest Hemingway, and whose Wikipedia article, after years of debate on its talk page, was updated to the name Gloria and all she-her pronouns. Quoting Cohen, Last February, Hemingway's talk page fielded a proposal on what name to use. There was a week of debates, long discussions in which a dozen or so editors grappled with how Hemingway would have wanted to be perceived. The main advocate for moving the page to Gloria was an editor named The Tranarchist, and the main opponent was an editor named St. Anselm, a self-described Calvinist who has created more than 50 articles about biblical characters and scenes. Yet the discussion on the talk page was about facts and Wikipedia policies and guidance, not politics. The discussion ended with a hung jury. Seven editors for Gloria, seven editors for Gregory. An experienced editor, Scepter, stepped in and ordered the article to be renamed. The decision was appealed, and an administrator concluded that Scepter had made a tough call that was ultimately reasonable. On the biggest social media sites, such a decision might have descended into endless mudslinging. Instead, everyone has respected the outcome and moved on. The article hasn't been touched in five months. End quote. The other example Cohen gives is of lawyer, priest, and activist Polly Murray. Some historians and other scholars believe that, given the opportunity and language available today, Murray may have come out as a transgender man. But even with today's language and opportunities, Murray could have also been non-binary, or simply a more butch woman, or any other gender. We don't know because we can't ask Murray. And the fact that Murray didn't use today's language, but the similarly nuanced language of Murray's own time, complicates the matter further. In this case, the Wikipedia editors continue to use she-her pronouns for Murray though Murray occasionally used S slash he in writing, but the article includes numerous sections about Murray's gender and sexuality with passages on scholarly debate and lots and lots of citations. And it's not just how to talk about the genders of people who passed away. Cohen also gives the example of how to refer to places with names that contain words considered to be slurs. Where do the borders lie between accuracy, usefulness, and respect? Where do they overlap? How do we keep up with the times and respect the dignity of all people when the only available sources are behind the times? And when it comes to Wikipedia, these are important questions to ask. Because, as Cohen points out, quote, Wikipedia results spread across the internet, often influencing what we think of as reality. And he says earlier in the article, Wikipedia's billions of facts, rendered as dry prose in millions of articles, help us understand the world. They're largely the brain behind Siri and Alexa. They've been integrated as official fact checks on conspiracy theory YouTube videos. They helped train chat GPT, end quote. As a separate Atlantic article from five years ago put it, Wikipedia is the last bastion of shared reality. The decisions that these, as a reminder, volunteer and anonymous editors make reverberate across the internet and seep into our common knowledge. In previous episodes, I've mentioned things like people editing the article for the word recession to suit their political beliefs, and other people adding an unverified birthday for cartoon character George Jetson. 
Both cases in which Wikipedia had to shut down editing for those pages because instead of the well-intended typical editors with their citations and policy adherence, these pages were being bombarded by first-time users just having a laugh. Or there was the time it was discovered that most of the Scots Wikipedia had been created by some American teenager who barely spoke any Scots. That was a particularly unfortunate and foreboding situation. Links to all of these episodes in the show notes, by the way. I've also brought up the story of Mr. Pringles and how his first name, Julius, was created as an intentional hoax on Wikipedia in 2006 by a college student, but how it stayed up on the Pringles page, unsighted and unchecked for so long through so many corporate mergers, that Pringles itself believed it had been the full name of their mascot all along. A funny, harmless example of how cracks in Wikipedia's mission, an encyclopedia that anyone can edit, can cause cracks in our own reality. But when it's working, when users follow the sources, when they check the talk page and the revision history, Wikipedia is still one of our best repositories of knowledge. And I would argue, as editors take on new approaches and, to quote Cohen, no longer automatically outsource the decision to a judgment of the past, end quote, it's becoming even stronger. Or at least, I think it's setting an excellent example for other platforms and for us all to remember as we consume and create content. An example of following the trail of information back to credible sources, and within those talk pages, an example of collegial debate that focuses on facts and a shared mission, rather than descending into political and personal attacks. You need to be wary when using Wikipedia for factual information, yes, but that's also exactly what Wikipedia teaches you to do. Well, in the style of a Wikipedia rabbit hole, here are a few miscellaneous points that I couldn't find a place for in that hulking main segment. First, you know the Long Island representative George Santos, who just can't stop lying about his life? The long history of those lies, and some absolute gems, were uncovered last week when someone at Politico dug up a few user accounts that seemed to have belonged to Santos. Accounts which recently tried to add fabrications about his life to the article about him as a representative, but also which constructed a series of typo-ridden and obviously false claims within a user bio all the way back in 2011. That user bio not only mentions being an award-winning drag queen, but also claims to have acted in Hannah Montana and the Nicole Kidman-Daniel Craig movie The Invasion. It's all a wild ride, but discoveries like that are one of the joys of digging into Wikipedia revision histories and talk pages. In another time that the joys of Wikipedia revision histories made themselves known, in a truly joyful way, and not one which makes you want to drive bamboo under your fingernails at the state of your country's legislative bodies, was when Annie Rowerta managed to hunt down the two people who appear in the photo for the article on High Fives, and found out that they ended up getting married, having children, and are still together. 
Link to the episode I featured that story on last year is in the show notes. And Rauerta, by the way, runs the Twitter and Instagram accounts Depths of Wiki, which highlight some of the most obscure and occasionally bizarre articles on Wikipedia. Well worth perusing, especially if this episode has gotten you on a bit of a Wikipedia kick. But that will all be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 